All right. How are we doing? Good? Good. Well, I'm Mark. I'm glad you're here. If you are new here, welcome to Redemption Parker. We are a church that says it's okay to not be okay. God will meet you where you're at. So we're glad you're here with us this morning. So uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, turn to John chapter 6. That's where we'll be going through. We're working our way through this series called Believe, uh, a series through the Gospel of John. Now, as you're turning there, just a, a word of advice. If you, only ever, if you have only one day in Paris, have a very good pair of walking shoes. Uh, I've, when we flew in to do some work there, we flew direct from Denver to Paris. They have a, a great flight, by the way. It was $400 round trip. Uh, so there you go. Uh, but we only had a day in Paris. And, and I've had a day in Paris before, so I knew what was ahead of ourselves. We've seen most of everything, quote unquote. Uh, and so I asked my kids, I asked my wife, well, what do you want to do? And they said, well, we want to climb the Eiffel Tower again. We want to go to Musée d'Orsay, and, and we want to go to the Louvre. I'm like, no, we can't, we can't do all of that. And they're like, no, no, we're going to do all that. I'm like, okay. And so we get there. We walk a couple miles to the, the Eiffel Tower. We go up the 669 steps to the second platform. We take our pictures. We walk down the 669 steps. We walk a couple miles back to our car, go park, and then walk a couple miles to Musée d'Orsay, and walk a couple miles back to the largest museum in the world, the Louvre. 650,000 square feet, 350,000 works of art, 35,000 that are considered masterpieces of art. I mean, it's no joke. So I did the math. If you were to go to the Louvre and just spend 30 seconds per masterpiece, you would have to go to the Louvre every day from open to close for 37 days in a row to see every masterpiece. So it's quite ridiculous to put that all into one day. And so like the 15,000 tourists that were there, uh, we move like cattle from one room to the next, just kind of checking it off like, that's cool, that's cool. And, and just you just go and, and you follow the signs to the big ones, you know, Venus de Milo, the, the Mona Lisa, and the, the crowds in front of the Mona Lisa. And, and no one really knows why the Mona Lisa is famous. It's just, she's like the Kim Kardashian of the art world, like just famous <laughs> for being famous. But, but they're there, and they're, they're taking their... And my kids, like, push people out of the way to get a view of the Mona Lisa. And, and then we move on past the other 35,000 masterpieces of art. And so I, I don't have a real refined sense of art. I haven't been an art student. And so I resonated with, you know, our... our our friends who brought their five-year-old daughter to the Louvre after a couple hours, and she just had it. She lost it. She just shouted out, I hate art. <laughs> and you'll see people sitting down because they're exhausted and all that. But, but if you pay attention, if you, if you um, don't get caught up in the crowd, every now and then you'll see someone sitting there, and they're not exhausted. They're, maybe they're art students. Maybe they're lovers of art, and they're not going from room to room to room. They're going, and they're sitting down, and they're staring at one masterpiece. I mean, these are masterpieces all day. Maybe they brought their own chair. Some of them bring their own sketch pad, and they're sketching there, and they're paying attention to the details, and they're soaking it in. Now, as we work our way through the Gospel of John, I feel that it's a little bit like the Louvre. And though we're going to spend 37 weeks, we really 
can't spend time looking at the masterpieces of the gospel that, that are being put before us every week, every week, every week. But today, I, I'm going to ask us to be more like art students than tourists. Uh, we're going to blow through some rooms here in John chapter 6. It's the longest chapter in the New Testament to get to some specific masterpieces, three of them that God would have us to see and to savor, and, and, and to do a work in our lives. These are gospel masterpieces. However, they aren't like the masterpieces in the Louvre that make no demands on your life. These will confront us. These will challenge us. And um, just by way of context, when, when Jesus says these, he says it to a crowd about 20,000 people and after he says these things, after he brings out these masterpieces of the gospel, they are so offended by them, 12 are left. So if you're doing the math at home, a year into Jesus' ministry, he's got 12 followers. But God, I believe, would want us to see these things, to savor these things, to, to contemplate what they mean for us, for our joy. This is for your joy. It will push us a little bit, but it's ultimately for your joy. And so again, if you have your Bible, go ahead and look at John chapter 6. We're going to be in that. John chapter 6. Let me just, by way of set, set it up, let us move through some of these rooms quite quickly um, and, and set this up because it's important that we see these things, I believe, because, well, so many of us come into this room uh, broken. So many of us come into this room burdened. Uh, maybe uh, you're going through a situation and you desperately need to, to hear from God. I, I believe it is providential that you're here this morning. Uh, maybe you're wrestling with whether or not God loves you or, or you're wrestling with whether or not your strength is genuine or real or strong enough. Maybe you're wrestling with, uh, you've looked on social media and you see it looks like all your friends are doing well. It looks like uh, all the people from high school have better jobs than you. It looks like they have better marriages than you. It looks like all these things. And so you're asking the question, what's wrong with me? And, and there's burdens here that every one of us are bringing into this place. And I believe Jesus would want to address each and every one of those things through his word to us this morning. So I believe it's providential that you're here. And so let me just go ahead and set this up and then I'll get to our passage. We're going to be mostly at verse 35 to 51. That's where we'll be. But uh, again, Jesus has come. He's, he's fed thousands. It says 5,000, but there's probably, that's just the men. So there might be about 20,000 people. He's taught them. Uh, the other gospel says he, he has compassion on them. Uh, they haven't prepared. And so uh, he says, why don't you guys feed them? They're like, if we worked for 200 days, Jesus, we couldn't feed everybody. And Peter steals some little kids' uh, uh, loaves and fish. And, and he says, I got these. And, and Jesus says, okay, have everyone sit down. And you know the story because uh, even if you're not a, a believer, uh, if you have no exposure to Christianity, you probably know what happens there. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. This is the only miracle that all four gospels record in everyone, that he feeds the 5,000. But as John does, remember, if you've been with us, he doesn't call them miracles. He says this was a sign because it's going to point to something for us. 
So, so the crowd gets their belly full, and, and the crowd uh, decides that, that they really like this Jesus. They, they really want, they want him uh, on their side. And so uh, it says, uh, let me see where it is. Oh, verse 15. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, so he gets out of there. Because Jesus is not ever, and he's going to say this again to them, he's never going to be a means to your end. He is the end. And until you see Jesus as the end rather than a means, you will never see Jesus for who he really is. And so they're like, this guy's good. He feeds us. He's powerful. Let's make him king. He's like, no. And so the disciples uh, get in a boat that night, uh, and a storm comes up. Jesus walks on the water, gets in the boat with them, and now they're on the other side. The next morning, this crowd that had their full, and and more than their full, uh, are, well, like us. They're hungry again. They ate dinner, but they like breakfast. And so they're looking for the breakfast guy, and they can't find the breakfast guy. And so they realize he's across the lake, but they don't know how they got there because they saw, said only the disciples went, and, and they're confused. So they get in boats, and, and they start heading over, and they start walking around the lake, this massive crowd again, and they're coming to Jesus. And he says, basically, you're coming to me because you, you see me as a means to an end. I'm not going to be a, 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 you know, a show pony for you. And they're like, well, then who do you think you are? You know, Moses gave us manna from heaven. What are you going to do? And you're like, are you serious? Did you, you were there yesterday. You're still unprepared. No bakeries, no restaurants opened overnight. Um, and, and, and they're like, we want you to feed us always. In fact, that's, that's what they say. Give us this bread always. And it's like, you, you're just not getting it. And so that's where we're at. And when we, he begins to teach us in verse 35, I'll read and then uh, pray for our time as we unpack these masterpieces of the gospel. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have, I lost my place. Oh my gosh. Okay. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 37, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him, because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Let me pray. God, we come before you now in the name of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, these truths are far weightier than I can comprehend and even hold out to your people. And so, Holy Spirit, we're asking once again that you would do that, that you would give us minds to comprehend, hearts to embrace this truth, these masterpieces, these things that you want to do a work in each and every life in this place right now. I pray that you would do that. And so I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts would be honoring and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are three masterpieces that we're going to pause and look at. In fact, the first one we'll spend the most time on because it is the one that for whatever reason, though God means it for our joy, though God means it for our comfort, though God means it for our humility and assuredness in God, is the one that our hearts, for some reason, seems to resist the most. We see it in verse 37 and verse 44. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus said, there is a condition to salvation. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one comes to the Father unless the the Father draws him. This is uh, what theologians would call the doctrine of election. And what it speaks to is man's complete inability to uh, save themselves, to do anything that would earn God's favor, to to do anything that would bring them to God. And so uh, it is this doctrine of election. It's really a, it's salvation from God's perspective. See, see, usually when we think of salvation, we're looking at it from our perspective. And so if you tell your story, if you're a follower of Christ, you usually talk about your, your family background or some trials that you went to, through, and then you became a Christian. And, and that's how the story goes. And, and that's natural because that's the perspective you can see it from. But I've never heard anyone tell their story that said like this, well, before eternity, God set his affections on me. And, and though for many years and, and many, in many different ways and thought, word, and deed, I rebelled against the love of the Father, a day came where God brought me into his family through the blood of his Son. That's salvation from God's perspective. And, and Jesus is bringing this out for our joy, for our comfort. But, but the people, they don't like that. In fact, we see uh, earlier in the chapter uh, when he's talking to them about uh, the bread and and the works of God. uh, Verse 28, it says this, then they said to him, what must we do? It's a question that is uh, intensely human across all cultures and time and place. uh, There is this thing in the heart of man called religion, and and it wants to answer this question, what must we do? What can we do? What prayers do we need to pray? What offerings do we need to make? What laws do we need to obey so that we're good enough? And there's something in us that, th- that, that tells us, yeah, we're good enough. 
We're lovely. God, of course God would set his affections on me. And then Jesus answers him. Verse 29, Jesus answered him. When they asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Jesus is introducing the idea that God's going to do all the work you believe. That word believe, we know, is, is pisteo. It means to trust. It means actively trusting, actively savoring Jesus. It does not mean, yeah, I checked the box mentally. I think you're, you're God. No, it, it is to trust in Jesus. That's the work of God. But again, they don't like this. We don't like this because it presupposes another truth, man's inability to do anything. But, but this is this is not just um, here. I mean, in the 5th century, there was, a, there was a British monk who lived in Rome. His name was Pelagius. Pelagius taught, well, man is basically morally neutral. You're born neutral, and, and as you go along, you, you kind of have this complete autonomous free will. And some people will use that for good, and some people will use that for bad, but basically we're blank slates. Praise the Lord. At that same time, a theologian named Augustine was present defending the truths of the church. And Augustine, who had a very, very corrupt life before his conversion to Christ, knew that that was not the case. Augustine knew the Bible. Augustine knew that, that no, we are not born spiritually neutral. I mean, just look to the Bible. Look to the Gospel of John where, where Jesus comes to Nicodemus, the most righteous man in all the land, and he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You're, you're not good enough on your own. Paul will write to the Ephesian church, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He'll say, uh, and we were dead in our sins and transgressions. It wasn't that we were spiritually neutral. We were dead, and dead people don't do anything. In verse 3 of chapter 2, it says, and we were by nature children of wrath. Like, that's who we are. We're not morally neutral. We are bent towards rebellion in our hearts, and we all do that in our thought, word, and deed, and we inherit that from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And Augustine says this, and other Church councils and creeds come up and, and say this. And so there should be a question if you're a follower of Christ in your mind. Maybe it's not a question you ask because you've just assumed wrongly. But God is setting this masterpiece before us to ask the question, why me? Why, why did God set his affection on Mark Oshman? And you start to think about it, and you say, well, it's not because I was morally superior to anyone. That's certainly not the case. It's not because I was intellectually superior. Uh, there is, there is no, nothing in me that would, would uh, uh, kind of uh, draw God to me. It wasn't that, that God was saying, Mark, I could really use Mark Oshman. <laughs> no. It's out of his sovereign, electing love of God. In fact, we see here uh, part of the reason why me, the answer to why me, uh, we see it in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me because God was pleased to give you to the Son, if you're a true believer. God was pleased to give you to the Son. Uh, in Corinthians, uh, Paul puts it another way. He says this, actually, um, just 
first, just to set the case just a little bit more uh, on where we're at. In the book of Romans, uh, quoting the Psalms, just to, to remind us where we're, where we're at, he says, no one is righteous. This is chapter 3, verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So why you? Why me? Well, because it pleases God. It pleases God to rescue and redeem you. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, it says, And it pleased God to the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So, so from eternity past, God, if you're a true believer, set his affections on you. So he set his affections on Saul of Tarsus, this man who, who was persecuting this church, this man who uh, breathed out violent threats, it said, this man who said, uh, went to the authorities and, and said, give me paperwork so I can stamp out this cult in Damascus and I'll drag them in and, and we'll persecute them. We'll, we'll set them up as an example. I'll murder them all. And so he got the official paperwork to do that. And then uh, that day he gets on his horse and he, he's got his chains and he's got his sword and he's on his way and, and he sleeps for the night and he gets on his horse the next day, and he's ready to murder Christians. And as he goes, and he wakes up that morning in the, the council of heaven, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are excited. This is the day. They are pleased. This is the day where, where Paul, where Saul is going to come into the family of God, and he was pleased. Do you know what that means? That you're not a project, that God is not hoping for that to, to love you someday, a future virgin version of yourself. Yes, God, if you're a believer, has entrusted the Holy Spirit in you and is desirous to form and shape you more and more into the image of Christ for his glory and your good. But God loves you today, right where you are. And there's nothing you could do to, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the second masterpiece. So let's, let's begin to look at that here. Um, well, not, not really. I'm not quite ahead of myself. I want to say one other thing here in this verse. There's some, one other implication here. Um, when it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It just means this. It means that what God wills, he accomplishes. So from eternity past, when God planned salvation, he wasn't crossing his fingers. I hope this works out. I mean, because that's going to be painful, Jesus. If you just go to the cross and die and, and, and you're forgotten, what a waste. That, that's not what God's doing. It, it is also not what God didn't like say, well, I know all of history, so I know who will choose me. We don't have time to look at that, but the word in the Bible to foreknow, to predestine, really means to forelove. It, it, it means to specifically choose us uh, before eternity, uh, be, before we had even rebelled, so that God in our worst state would bring us into the kingdom. God accomplishes what he sets out. Now, belief is necessary. We see this in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And again, that then starts to fall back onto man's side of, uh, of salvation. But, but, but what God wants you to know, believer, is that he did that in you. He, he stirred in you a desire to come to him, to believe him. Well, let's pull out the second treasure, the second masterpiece that God would have for us. It's found in the second half of the verse as we read. 
Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus continues to, to, to bring this masterpiece in, in front of us. Back to verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, what is that, Jesus? Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should be raised to eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the second masterpiece, you might know it as uh, eternal security. It's the question, can you lose your salvation? If, if God chose you, then can you lose your salvation? And what Jesus is saying here and what the Bible will say throughout emphatically is, no, you can't. Why? Because you are in the strong, unconquerable grip of grace of Jesus. So, so we don't look to our own strength. We don't look to our own ability to believe more. We don't look to our performance, what we do or don't. We look to Jesus and his strength. And in that, we see he is unconquerable. He will accomplish all that the Father has given him to accomplish. We are secure forever in him. So sometimes this is known as the doctrine of eternal security or perseverance of the saints, but, but I want to suggest a better term for this is the preservation of the saints. It's not that you just need to try really hard to persevere. It's that Jesus will preserve you if you are a true believer. This is meant to encourage true believers. It's not meant to encourage family members you think might have believed one time or someone you prayed a prayer one time. It is if you are actively trusting in Christ today, Jesus wants you to see and savor this masterpiece and feel secure in that. Well, there is a third masterpiece. If, if these masterpieces so far, uh, one end is, starts at the beginning of eternity, and the other, that, that's election, and the other one goes to the end. That's the preservation of the saints. Over all this is the third masterpiece. We see this at the beginning and the end of our passage, verse 35. I am the bread of life. I am Jesus, this is the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, uh, and, and it's going to, again, each time he says it, we should pause and see what it's telling us, what, what this means for us. I am the bread of life. And then back down in verse 48, I am the bread of life. What is Jesus talking about there? What's the masterpiece that God would have us behold and transform us? Um, yesterday, I was in a tennis match. I play in a match that uh, tennis league that kind of matches us up with random people across South Denver. And so I met this guy for the first time and um, had a great time. And in, in between games and, and sets, we're, we're chatting and um, it kind of it's over by where I grew up, over by uh, Arapahoe High School. And so I'm talking about how oh, I went to this school here. And he's like, oh, my wife went to this school. Um, I'm like, really? He's like, well, I'm not married yet. We have a we have a seven-month-old, but we're about to get married. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, um, he looks like about my age. And I'm like, uh, when did your wife go to the school? And he's like, ah, I, I don't know. She's, she's born in 1975. And I'm like, well, I'm born in 1975. And so what's her name? And he says, oh, her name's, well, that's not important to you. Uh, but uh, so I'm like, well, I kind of, I, I kind of, 
remember that. And so we're just chatting, and, and I ask, you know, so how did you meet, and, and tell, tell me your story. And very, very nice guy. And, and he said something. He said, as he was just explaining his story, he said, well, you know, it's complicated. It, it's not like the magazine covers or the television shows. And what he was pointing his, putting his finger on, whether he knew it or not, is what philosophers call hyper-reality. We live in a world of hyper-reality, in a world that has, uh, has stripped away any transcendence, in a world that has stripped away any uh, transcendent meaning and purpose for life. We live in a hyper-reality world full of images and mirages to be pursued. And so every commercial is selling you a hyper-reality version. And if you get this car, if you buy this thing, then you'll find meaning, then you'll find happiness. And we chase that, and it's a mirage. And, and so uh, every magazine cover does this, and, and it puts beautiful women on, on the cover as the standard, the hyper-reality standard of beauty in our culture. And, and we say that's what is beautiful. What we don't think about in that moment is that, uh, well, there, this is a professional model. There was a professional cameraman with a $5,000 lens with just the right lighting and a makeup crew to cover over any blemishes. And after the set, they're going to put that into Photoshop and someone's going to enhance curves and take away any other imperfections. This is what you need to shoot for, ladies, and it's a hyper-reality. And you can kind of see what that begins to cause and stir in us as a culture, a, a, a disenchantment, a disillusionment, a, a, a constant chasing after the wind, as Solomon would say in uh, the song, in uh, whatever. Um, that's not even in my notes. Uh, but... You, you understand what I'm saying? And, and, and the thing that drives this even more than anything in this moment is social media, right? Because everyone's got a hyper-reality version of themselves. You're going to put your, the right pictures up. You're going to tell the right stories. And as we look on at all of our friends and, and everyone else, we're like, well, everyone else seems to be doing better than me. Everyone else seems to be happier. Maybe if I had that job, or maybe if I had a family like that family, or maybe if whatever the case may be, it's this hyper-reality view that we're trying to put out in front of the world. And I've already mentioned her name once, but the, the queen of social media, Kim Kardashian, once said she needed to take 1,200 selfies a day to find the two or three she could put on social media because she is in a hyper reality world, a world chasing after an image that isn't there, a world stripped of transcendence and meaning and purpose. The CDC last week came out with a study, this report, and it said one in three high school students say they've experienced persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. One in three, persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. Because what have we done as a culture? We said there's, there's no transcendence. There's no ultimate meaning out there. Find your own meaning. And we weren't made for that. We weren't made for a hyper-reality world. Mike Cosper in his book, Recapturing the Wonder, summarizes it greatly like this. In a world drained of transcendence, there is only the approval of the mob to fill the void. And so no wonder there's so much... Uh, striving and struggling and disillusionment and anxiety and all these things. So what does this have to do with this masterpiece? When Jesus says, I am the bread of the world, 
I am the bread of the world. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am ultimate reality. I I am the one who created the cosmos. I am the only one that can satisfy your soul. You were made by me and for me, and only in relationship with me will you find sustenance and nourishment and meaning and purpose. I am ultimate reality. And so Jesus is offering that to you. So, so Jesus is, is, is sovereign over the ends and the means. And so the ends are who will be rescued and redeemed, but the means are that we would uh, continually come to him to find our satisfaction, to find our hope, to find our spiritual nourishment, to find what really matters. And Jesus is saying, I love you, and only my love really matters in the end anyway. I accept you. Not based on your performance or your looks or chasing after some mirage. I accept you because I made you. And I know you. And I died for you. I went to the cross for you out of love. He is ultimate reality. So, how should these truths transform us? How should these masterpieces, having now seen them, uh, affect us? Well, I want to speak to two groups of people. First of all, if you are here and you're not yet a follower of Christ, I'll just say this. You should be encouraged. You should be encouraged because I know this from on the authority of the Word of God that God is a God of the ends as well as the means. Maybe you're like, well, I don't like that. I don't like that. That sounds unfair that God chooses some and doesn't choose others. And I understand that. But when you really understand the situation, you're right, it is unfair because all of us deserve the justified wrath of God against our sin and God could be fully justified and still holy and right and good if he chose to get rid of all of us. So that would be fair. But in his mercy, he's chosen some from eternity past. Well, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? Well, there are some pretty good evidences right now that God is at work in your life. You're sitting, you're hearing the gospel proclaimed. That's one of the means that God uses to bring people into the family of God. And if you have any inclination, if you have any wrestle, if you have any desire for God, know this. Ephesians 2, 1 says you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Dead people don't wrestle. Dead people don't wonder about this. There's, there's life there. Follow that. The Spirit of God is at work. And even today, you can come and be transferred from the dominion of darkness, the Bible says, and brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves. And if you do that today, you have a tremendous advantage. You have the advantage of knowing that it was God at work and not you. See, when I became a new believer, I I was delivering pizzas at Pizza Hut. And I discovered Christian radio, not Christian music radio. I, I don't listen to that, but Christian radio uh, sermons. And, and uh, every night I would listen to these sermons, great sermons, great, amazing sermons. As a new believer, I was just drinking it in. And I'd listen to a guy named Chuck Swiddell every night. And, and I'd listen to him. And Chuck would, at the end, after these amazing sermons, every time invite the listener uh, to trust in Jesus, to, to, to pray a prayer, uh, to accept Jesus. And, and so I remember over about a six month period. I must have done that a dozen times. I'm like, I don't know if it's stuck. 
I, I, I didn't know this truth. I didn't know what the, this masterpiece that God would want me to know. And so I was like, well, my life doesn't look that changed. And so I better pray the prayer again. I'd pull over to the side of the road and I'd pray that prayer. And then I'd pray the prayer again. And it wasn't until after a while that I came to see Jesus has got me. <laughs> And it's not really about how I feel from day to day. And it's not really about my performance. It's not even really about my, the strength of my faith. Jesus has got me. And if you come to know Jesus today, you can know that from day one. And that's a tremendous advantage in the Christian life. But for those that are followers, how should these masterpieces affect us? How should they change us? Well, first of all, I think they should humble us. It isn't fair that you would be chosen. There was nothing in you that God said, man, I really want that on my team. <laughs> it was the sovereign grace of God. This should deeply humble us. Those, there's, this, there's this real ironic thing in the Christian life that people that embrace this doctrine have a reputation of being jerks. It's, it's ridiculous. How can you say, I've done nothing, it's all grace, it's all God, it's all Him, and then be a jerk? Like, don't do that. Be humble. You didn't deserve this. There's nothing in you. You're not smarter than anyone else. You're not, not more righteous than anyone else. It's the righteousness of Jesus. Be humble if you believe this. So be humble. The second one I would say is be comforted. Be comforted. I've said it several times already. When you, when you get this, that, that God has chosen you and that Jesus is holding you, man, there is comfort in that. You don't have to be tossed about by, by social media feeds and, and uh, wondering if, if, if you're doing all that you should be doing. You can be comforted. And then finally, I would just say be confident. God has a purpose and a plan for you. He's rescued you. He will hold you. And he's given you Jesus to continue to come to and be filled by. You can be confident as you go out here. And because God is a God of the, mean, of the ends as well as the means, and, and God wants to use his body to proclaim this truth and rescue and redeem sinners, Parker needs you to embrace these truths. Parker needs you to be humble, to be comforted, to be confident. Our neighbors need us to, to embrace these truths. Our family members need us to embrace these truths and then to see God at work in his sovereign, electing grace of God. To that end, let me pray for us as God would send us out here. Father, we come before you, and even now I know that my words fail to capture the weight of the glory of this. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would again apply this truth to our hearts. Lord, I do want to pray for those that maybe came in here, thought they were followers of God, but realized that it was really about you being a, 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 a means to their end, that they would repent and trust you and know that your love would come into their life right now. Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that you would humble us God, it is an amazing truth that we were dead in our sins and transgressions. We were by nature children of wrath, but God sent his son Jesus. And by grace through faith, you rescued us. 
And so help us to be that kind of humble, confident, comforted people this week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.